There's a new graphic novel that I've been sent. I have my hands on it, and it is really fucking cool. It's called Bizarre New World, and it is a super fun comedy fantasy. Uh, it's it's grounded in the real world, but it's it's about this guy, Paul Crutcher, who is the world's first flying man, and about his experiences as the first guy who can fly. Unfortunately, his status changes as the only guy who can fly when the entire human race joins him in the sky, and everything changes. It's beautiful. It's 278 pages, and it is such a fun thing to read. My brother is, like, obsessed with... Uh, uh, with graphic novels, and it's never really been my thing, but this thing, this one is really fun to read. Uh, so you can be a part of it by going to their Kickstarter campaign right now, and if you make a donation, you actually get a copy sent to you. Uh, so you go to Kickstarter, and you search Bizarre New World, and when it gets successfully funded, you get a digital copy or even a copy in paperback. So you can visit Bizarre New World, B-I-Z-A-R-R-E, newworld.com for more info. Check it out. It's a really fun read. Thank you so much for listening. Welcome. It's another episode of Reading Aloud. My name is Nate Cordry, and per usual, I am full of excitement to bring you another great episode with some really talented folks. Again, we're running the gamut. We are. Uh, <laughs> we have lots of funny jokes. We have a really compelling interview, and then some. Uh, then some David Foster Wallace at the end for you. So it's a wonderful mix. But I wanted to start off the show with my pal Jeffrey Arend reading a really hilarious piece from, again, from McSweeney's Internet Tendency, maybe the most important website on the internet. This is a piece written by Matt Schweiger called A Realistic Assessment of How Many 12-Year-Olds I Could Beat Up Before They Overtook Me. <laughs> he wrote this in 2005. And Jeffrey Arend, uh, who's a pal from back from New York, from the old days. Uh, he's a wonderful actor. He's on uh, Madam Secretary right now. He plays Matt Mahoney on Madam Secretary. So, But you've seen him in everything. My God, Super Troopers, 500 Days of Summer, Garden State Devil. He's been in a, a million bagillion things. He's constantly working. And he was nice enough to come in and read this piece for the audience in the last show, or two shows ago, actually. And he just killed. And I'm so appreciative of him coming in and doing it um, so, Jeffrey, thank you. You killed, and now my listeners get to hear you kill. Uh, but before we get to that, I wanted to remind my listeners to go get Toni Morrison's book, uh, God Help the Child, which is the book club choice for this month. We record the book club episode on, on Thursday, May 21st, and then it'll come out on the 22nd. So that's next week. So get the book and read it and send in your thoughts. It's really quick. It's only 200 pages. It's a pretty easy read. And she's wonderful. So read it and send us in your thoughts at readingaloudpodcast at gmail.com. And be a part of this book club and be included in the show. We want, we want you to be a part of it. Um, and uh, big thanks to all my readers this past weekend at the UCB. The show was so much fun. Mike Rock, Sam Richardson, um, Manzukis. 
John Daly, Darcy Carden, Lindsay Craft, they were all wonderful, and I'm going to bring some of those pieces to you in future episodes of Reading Aloud. Uh, we do uh, a show at the UCB on Franklin every second Sunday of the month, and we're already lining up amazing guests for the June show. So thank you for those who came and saw the show in uh, last week, the uh, May 10th show. Happy Mother's Day, belatedly. Uh, so thanks for coming. And now, here is Jeffrey. Thanks, Jeffrey. Your average 12-year-old boy is about five feet tall, weighs in the area of a buck 15, and has developed little muscle mass. I am 21, approximately six feet tall, tip the scales at an even 180, and have a moderately athletic and muscular build. Judging on these statistics and what I assume would be a natural ferocity that would spring forth in a moment of physical danger, I estimate that I could beat up seven 12-year-olds before they overtook me. Of course, they would have to be the aforementioned average-sized 12-year-olds. Uh, future linebackers, NBA players, and all Scandinavian children would throw off the equation. On the flip side, if these were some wimpy, four-square-playing future jockey 12-year-olds, I imagine the number would skyrocket to anywhere between 12 and 15. I mean, it's simple exponential math. This is also assuming that my opponents are smart enough to organize themselves into a circular attack instead of coming at me one by one. I mean, if it were an individual King of the Mountain battle royale, I could endlessly pummel 12-year-olds <laughs> without mercy. But we're assuming at least a sixth grade education in a marginal public school, as well as some exposure to kung fu movies. So these kids would form a circle. <laughs> However, using my quick wits, I would charge one portion of the circle, landing a devastating blow on the unlucky individual, which would make the others proceed with hesitancy. One-on-one, -on -one, I feel like I could deliver a lot of punishment to a 12-year-old. I mean, there would be one or two brave ones who would jump on my back, distracting me and thus enabling the others to attack. At best, I could fight off the two heroes on my back and maybe take out four on the ground before I was felled by fatigue and numerous kicks to my groin and shins. This would equal a grand total of seven. My friend Brian, who stands about six feet two inches and is stronger than myself, estimates that he could take down a dozen 12-year-olds. I find this hard to believe. <laughs> but he has been in a fight with people his own age and is a little taller making groin shots more difficult. Brian's reach is much longer than mine as well, which is a huge advantage. I mean, if you could land solid shots from a distance longer than the 12-year-old's legs, there is no need to worry about groin kicks. He says he would attack one portion of the circle in a fury, scaring off any would-be heroes who wanted to jump on his back and sacrifice themselves for the group. Then he would deal massive blows until fatigue and the inevitable groin shots brought him to the ground. I told him I'd give him nine or ten, but even for the above average Brian, taking down a dozen 12-year-olds seems like a lot. If it weren't for the law 
and my own morals. <laughs> we could put these pressing questions to test. <laughs> Excuse me, we could put these pressing questions to rest. Alas, these barriers still stand in our way. I'm a pacifist anyway. So. <laughs> Did you know you can refinance your student loans, save thousands, and make the whole process a piece of cake? It's possible. Our sponsor this week, Ernest, has created the first radically flexible refinancing experience that can save you thousands on your loans and put you back in control of your payment terms. I wish I had the service when I was still paying off my loans. Thankfully, I paid them off. Thank God. But for you out there, listeners that haven't, MeetErnest.com is the place to go. This product helps customers save an average of more than $12,500 with rates as low as 1.9, which is insane. You can set your own terms. You can change your payment amount and date. You can skip a payment, all with just a, a few clicks at MeetErnest.com. They're a brand new kind of lender, and they never pass you off to a third party. Their on-site team in customer service is just fantastic if you ever have a question. It takes less than two minutes to find out how much you can save. And you get, my listeners get $150 cash back when you refinance through meetearnest.com slash Nate. So don't get stuck paying more than you have to. So check out meetearnest.com slash Nate and take control Take control and quickly see your personalized rates today. Mara Didi is the head of reference and adult services at the Tufts Library in Weymouth, Massachusetts. If you've listened to this podcast before, specifically the episode where I chat with my own mother, you'll remember Tufts Library, my childhood library growing up. It still stands. And not only that, not only is it standing, it is thriving. And Mara is one of the reasons... Why? How long has Tufts Library been in operation? This is 50 years, right? Yes, exactly. So um, in the fall, we'll be celebrating the 50th anniversary of this building. Wow. Um, which is kind of exciting. So I'm working on some, um, trying to make some extra special events this fall um, to celebrate that anniversary and everything that the library has seen um, and has changed over the years. You and I are in are in negotiations currently about a potential fall <laughs> show. Yes, it, yeah, it's really exciting. Um, I'm really hoping that that could come together. It uh, would definitely be a, a highlight of my career. I, <laughs> I'm so bold to say that. I, I don't know, if, I don't know be, if that seems so cheesy, but I don't know if it'd be a highlight of your career, yeah. but it would be a, a really fun, spectacular event to do to have yeah. a. How about 2015? Yeah, that that makes complete sense to me. Um, what is a? I, I want to ask you some some general sure. library questions because I haven't been a regular at a local library in a long time. It used to be like a huge part of my life as a kid, going all the time with my mom while she perused the stacks looking for the most recent nun slash priest slash cop mystery that was exactly. said on an island off of the coast of Maine. In high school, I was going to the school library all the time, you know, during study period um, to hang with Miss Riz, who is the coolest librarian in, in, in public schools. Miss um, Riz, I love you. Uh, in college, I went to, you know, actually study and try to talk to girls. But as an adult, it hasn't really been in my life. And I want to know... 
what has changed and what I'm, what I'm missing out on. Yeah, that's um, a very common, I think, your um, demographic, that sort of, you know, 20 to 30-something is a, is, a, is a population that I don't see in the library too often reading unless they're coming with their children for children's programming. Um, I had, um, you know, are you familiar with Bob Ryan, the sports writer from yeah, the Globe? Yeah, of course. Um, yeah, so we did an event with him the other week, um, you know, standing room only, and there was some you know, young guys in their 20s who came to the program, and I was like, hi, welcome. I'm so excited you're here. Like, how did you hear about it? Like, why are you here? Obviously, they're here for the event, but kind of thinking, like, why, why aren't you coming? Why don't I see you more often? So it's a population that we're, you know, struggling to kind of attract into the library. Um, but what you're missing, um, so I think one of the things that we're doing is, um, you know, our brick-and-mortar building is really important in the programming and events that we do and the services that we offer, but um, we offer a lot of digital services that you can access from your home or if you're traveling or if you're on vacation, um, things like eBooks and audiobooks. Um, we have a streaming service with movies, TV shows, audiobooks. Wow. Yeah, so we um, started that service um, at the end of December, right before Christmas. Oh, it's um, brand new. Yeah, yeah, it's brand new. Um, People often, it's a busy time for our digital collections. As people get devices, they, you know, check out what they can get for free. Right. Um, so that's at the library. Um, yeah, it's going pretty well. Um, it's all about marketing and chatting it up to people. Yeah. Um, that this was my... summer, we're going to host some, uh, like, drop-in sessions where people can bring their devices and uh, get help um, accessing the library content. That was my next question. How do you market yeah. that? How do you get the word out that with a with a library card that's free, you can stream all kinds of movies and television shows at your house? That's that's an amazing service. Yeah, I um, so we market kind of in like, traditional ways. Um, you know, we have a, a column in the newspaper. Um, you know, I try to tell everybody in the library if people um, if they're checking out like a DVD, letting them know that we have this new service. Um, I mentioned it at events, but, you know, it's uh, it's tricky. We're talking about the people who are already coming in library users, so trying to figure out how to promote it to people who don't necessarily have a library card. Right. I, I found an interview that you gave online about how great it had made you feel to help a patron at the library find a job. He had no oh, email. Uh, he had no resume. He had nothing. Yeah, exactly. He came in empty-handed, and you were able to guide him on that path. Will, will you tell me that story? That seems yeah. amazing. Oh, that's so crazy that you found that, um, that interview. My previous job when I was working at the Ferguson Library in Stamford, Connecticut, which is a much different population than Weymouth. Um, but there was a guy who would just come in um, and didn't know how to use a computer, um, didn't have email. So what we do as librarians is help them with these skills. So yeah. we offered computer classes. So came to those, but every day he would come um, and to the library and would, you know, ask for help setting up an email account, so we'd help him with that, and, you know, he'd ask, like, the same questions a few times, and then he would get it, and then he'd, you know, a few days later, he'd be like, well, how do I do this thing, and we would teach him how to do that, like, how do you respond, like, for, I don't know, uh, you know, attach your resume, right. um, which also involved teaching him Word, what Word was, and how to write a resume. Wow. Um, I mean, and, like, all things I think we take for Granted, exactly. Like, there's a lot of lot of steps that go involved to you know how do you open up your email and compose a message and send. Like just even learning the mouse is so 
challenging. So right. he ended up, uh, you know, started applying for jobs. How do you find jobs on Craigslist? How do you apply to jobs with those, um, you know, kind of HR software that so many companies have now? So, that, you know, kind of incrementally teaching him these skills, and, and he would just continue to ask questions to further his own knowledge. Um, and eventually he got a job, and that was incredible and so exciting. Wow. And I, I was, you know, so happy for him. Um, you know, his life was changing for the better, and that I played a role in that. And then he needed to find a place to live. So then we're back on Craigslist helping him find apartments and talking about wow. that. So, wow. uh, yeah, it was really incredible um, to, to, to watch that happen sort of slowly, slowly over time. And, and his persistence at um, learning. Yeah, what, it was what, really wonderful. What was that like, him coming, coming to see you and be like, Mara, I got a job? Um, I mean... Incredible. I, 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 I mean, to be cheesy, but like, I guess that's what, you know, the, that's what it means to serve the public to, right. to see like the positive impact in their lives. Um, you, you don't really always know sometimes what's happening um, when people are asking for books that might be of sensitive nature or they're asking for help locating services. You don't really hear what the outcomes were. So it was rewarding to to hear what the outcomes were and to and to and to experience that joy with him um, and celebrate it with him. It was really uh, it was an honor. Because usually someone comes in with maybe a sensitive question, and you help guide them to where they need to go or the services that they need, and then they disappear. You usually yeah. don't usually don't see a follow up. Thank you. Basically, I'm assuming. Uh, you know, not not too often. Yeah. Um, and 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 we as librarians are very um, invested in privacy and um, you know protecting people's you know right to ask questions. You know, we don't we we would never tell you anyone else what anyone else was asking or checking out mm. um, library yeah. records. We um, you know are very private. Um, right. So you know, so yeah, exactly. Um, People will come in and ask for things, and you know, you 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 do the best to serve them and connect them with the information that they need and um, are looking for, and send them on their way. That must be. I mean, you're you're one half librarian and researcher, and other half almost. Well, you can't editorialize. You can't be a therapist, but that's very. Sen- I mean, people are coming in needing information on. I'm, I'm assuming. All kinds of sensitive stuff, end-of-life choices, um, uh, abortion, drug and addiction, yeah, all of this exactly. hardcore mm-hmm. stuff. That, that, and they're, they're, they're trusting you, and they're sharing this really intense personal part of their lives that they're not sharing with probably anyone, and yet they exactly. have your trust and your confidence that you will take care of them. Yeah, and so we're... Um you know, I really emphasize kindness and empathy to my staff and in interactions. Um, you know, kind of, you know, are agitated. You don't, you don't really know what they just came from or, yeah. you know, what their lives are like or are. So just kind of, you know, exercising that kindness um, to them um, when it's happening. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's plenty of times I've you know, there was, there was one sweet man who had come from a grief support group at the hospital. His wife had just passed away and he was looking for books. And I just was like, can I give you a hug? Like, I'm so sorry. And, you know, gave him a hug and, um, you know, shared me some wonderful stories about his wife. And, you know, I helped him find some books and 
he was like, thanks. Thanks for listening to me. And like, as I always say, I'm like, well, it's my pleasure. I'm, I'm happy to do it. So. Wow. I, you're opening up a whole new world of the librarian that I hadn't even considered. I hadn't thought about this side of your work. I hadn't thought about the almost like the sensitivity training you need to yeah. have, the amount of empathy that you have for all the men yeah. and women that come in there needing, needing help, not with questions on their book report on Waterloo, but on how to grieve. I mean, this guy was trying to figure out how to best grieve. Yeah, exactly. Wow. Um, Holy and, cow. And, and, coming, and knowing that the library was the place where he could find that information, you know, trusting us that we would help him on that journey. Is the children's section still downstairs? It is. Wow. Um, well, next time you're in town, you have to come by. I will. Obviously. Um, but yes, it is still downstairs. Um, we just kind of um, gave it a fresh coat of paint um, to uh, freshen it up. Right. Um, yeah, we have a brilliant children's librarian down there, Amy um, Periello, who runs um, all the children's programming. And um, it's so nice. Our library, as you probably know, abuts um, Weston Park, where yeah. there's a nice um, playground and a gigantic slide. So um, it's really busy. There's, I'm looking out at the park right now, and there's tons of kids out there. And it's nice. They go play, and then they come in the library and right. like, pick up some books. And Some of the most patient men and women I've ever crossed paths with in my entire life work down there. That takes a special kind of sensibility to work as a children's librarian. I don't that the patience, I don't understand. I don't know where that comes from. That is a gift. Yeah. Is she enlightened? Um, is she a meditator? Amazing. What's that? Is, is she, she a meditator? Yeah. Uh, I don't think so. She goes for walks on her breaks quite frequently. Okay. Good um, for her. Sometimes we'll go together, and then, and then we have like a you know a walking meeting. It ends up, but uh, uh. Yeah. I remember it being fucking chaos. Like certain kids would walk in, slam, bam, bam. Where's that roll doll book? Where's the witches? You're like, shh, yeah. hey, you can't, you can't yell down here. I want a book about a tiger. And it was like, oh God. And I remember feeling embarrassed. I was like, no, they're supposed to be quiet. Cause my mother was like, you don't, you walk down those stairs and you yeah. shut your mouth. Okay. You're always quiet in here. Especially down there. Keep your mouth shut. I mean, she didn't say it like that, but she <laughs> let me know that I wasn't supposed to speak right, down there. Right. And when kids would walk in from the slides full of energy, they'd walk through the door. Blah, yeah, blah, blah. Yeah. And then you'd hear them and you'd hear <laughs> the patient librarian go, shh. And then they go, yeah, yeah. and then they start to have like these children's <laughs> whispers, which are basically like full voice conversations. I, yeah, I don't exactly. know how I, that takes some serious patience. <laughs> Oh boy! Yeah, um, not a shushing library anymore. Um, uh, yeah, but it still is pretty. Um, you know, there's sometimes I go down there and I'm like, wow, it is just like, especially after story time has ended, and there's just like kids running around, checking out books, and like playing with things we have down there. Yeah, it, it is just chaos. So, so do like, you? Okay, so, I'm gonna go back upstairs. So you don't have a rule that it's quiet. Um, no, no. I mean, I think, huh. you know, our, our like a, appropriate use is, you know, kind of just be respectful. You know, everyone's going to be using the library in a different way. Um, I mean, it, it is a challenge that we have, um, you know, people want to look for quiet study spaces and rooms and, um, you know, they'll, they'll 
it's the layout is, is just a really big open room and sound does carry. So um, we're trying to figure out how to create more seating that could be, you know, absorb sound, um, mm. give people, you know, a little bit of privacy, but you're still in, in this open space. Right. Um, um, yeah, those, that's one of the things we're kind of trying to figure out right now. But, I, you know, I, I, I mean, I, I'm of a different generation of a librarian, but I, I, I love to talk with my patrons and, you know, it, I wanted to be a community. I wanted, I want the patrons library um, and to come in and have conversations and connect not only with the staff who are right. avid readers and, yeah. you know, involved in the community, but also, you know, with other patrons who are, who are there in the building. Um, right. Yeah. I mean, sometimes we joke that patrons shush us if we're maybe being too loud. <laughs> so that, that has happened on occasion. <laughs> Who comes into the Tufts Library on an average Thursday? Do, do you guys have regulars that come in oh, every day? Yeah, they're the best. Oh, I love them. They come in every day. Oh, nice. There's some, yeah, there's um, one in particular, one guy who comes in like every day. He's really into our DVDs. Um, and he, you know, he's always in the catalog, you know, checking out, you know, movies, borrowing them from other libraries. Um, how yeah, old are people the, who come in like once a week? Oh, I don't know, maybe in his forties. And he's what kind of? Well, actually, you're you're not at liberty to say, but he's always <laughs> checking out movies. Yeah. Are, yeah. are there people that come in that, to just to sit and read the paper like every day? Yeah. Yep. That's one of yeah. Yeah, we have regulars, some regulars in the mornings who do that, or in the afternoons, or right. Um, we'll even you know come on the weekend and. Just read the papers. Do you ever see your regulars outside of the library? Um, sometimes, um, sometimes I do. I might run in. I don't. I don't live in Weymouth, um, so probably not as much as if I did. Oh, but, okay. Um, yeah, but sometimes at like town hall, or if I'm, you know, running an errand or something, and it's always a little bit of like, you know, when like you would see your teacher outside right. of school. Right. It's like, so hey. weird. Like, oh my goodness, they it's, let you out of the building. Exactly. It's such a shock. Like you're wait. You're at Denley's yeah. Pizza. To, Denley's is still open, right? I don't know. Where is where, it? Better I, be open. It's by the old police station. It, Denley's Pizza is the best pizza in Weymouth, and there's no one can argue that. The end. I'm okay. not gonna. That's not open argument. Frank's is closed. There's Weymouth House. There's a bunch of other places, but Denley's is the best. Do yourself a favor. After work someday, you and your husband head over to Denley's and get a large pepperoni. That place is great. It's it's the weirdest bar. It's a restaurant. There's great old uh-huh. wooden booths that are like carved and it's super dark. They have one TV. Okay. And the bar, there's no, there's, the bar is maybe six feet long. That's it. And there are no <laughs> stools. You have to stand, which That's is great. the fucking, gr- there's something so charming and badass about that place. That was my very first uh, farm league team was Denley, Denley Gardens. And my mother is so pissed. She's like, it's a bar. Your, your team is a bar. She was so disappointed that it wasn't like, you know, Immaculate Conception Church or something. Um, yeah, yeah. But, uh, but oh. Denley's is great. Anyway, yeah, seeing, seeing uh, people that you only see in one environment outside of that environment is always, always a shock. Yeah. There's a str- I saw patrons at the MFA one day, and I went up and said hi to them, and I, I think it took them like five minutes for me yeah. for them to who I was. I was like, I'm the librarian. Weymouth, I help you all the time. We <laughs> right. talk once a week. <laughs> I'm like, where do I know you from? Like, the library. That is I'm so funny. 
Yeah. Um, so tell me, I want to transition off of the library and talk about okay. you and your reading. Someone who sure. literally is a professional reader. I want to ask yeah. what's on your bedside table. Like, what are you really excited to, to so read? So I actually brought all my bedside table books to the library today. Yes. So I could like look at them. Awesome. Um, Let's talk, talk about, about them. them. Yes. But um, I, I, would, I would be amiss if I didn't clear up a conception that like librarians sit around reading books all day. Like, definitely not true. No, you I read, guys party. I read probably more book reviews than actual books. Um, okay. Yeah. Um, Do you have a favorite book reviewer, like a favorite place to go to get book reviews? Um, uh, Library Journal. That's sort of our like oh. industry magazine. Don't um, know it. So it has that's book exciting. Reviews and also, yeah, you should check it out sometime. Okay. Um, uh, I used to actually review, uh, I had a computer book column for them um, back in like 2000. Seven, oh, cool. Yeah. Um, uh, and also just like library news, you know, what's happening. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, I mean, I check out the Boston Globe, of course, um, most, and that's because uh, that's what our community is reading. So oftentimes whatever books have been reviewed or talked about, people are going to be asking for them on Monday. Um, sure. So that's important to read. Um, I mean, and also things like People and Entertainment Weekly um, or the Oprah Magazine, like that. that's also what our community is reading. And, you know, they talk about books. So, you know, I, I, you know not every once in a while I'll sort of check in and see what, what they're talking about for books. Oh, wow. I hadn't thought of that. Um, yeah. Um, so what I'm reading right now, um, I'm sort of reading two books. Um, they're different that I'm excited about. One is um, Ages for Hawks by Helen McDonald. Will you say that again? You, um, you cut out for a second. Oh, sorry. It's called H is for Hawk. Yes. I've, see, I've walked past it at Skylight Books, yeah. which is my local bookstore. The book cover store. is beautiful. Yes. Um, yeah, it's a great cover. Yeah, and the New Yorker had this like great little blurb for it that if said like if there was a award for the best new book that defies every genre, this book would have won it. And Whoa. it is just... I know, right? Uh, it is... It's it, her writing is so beautiful, and uh, so it's sort of a story. Her father um, passes away suddenly, um, and she's a falconer. Um, she's sort of kind of, you know, very much into hawks since her oh, childhood. Cool. So after he, yeah, after he passes away, she um, starts to train a goshawk, um, which she's never done before, which are supposed to be incredibly vicious. So, Whoa. you know, it's kind of like grief memoir there's this like feral quality to her oh, grief and God, retreating and trying to tame this animal. But then there's also this element where she explores, um, what's his name? T.H. White, who wrote The Once and Future King, who also wrote a book about like um, trading goshawks. So kind of, I don't know, exploring his life as well. Wow. Um, I don't know. It's, it's incredible. There's just really beautiful writing um, about, you know, these birds. Um, I was reading it last night and just, you know, kind of just kept reading like the same passages over and over again because the writing is so beautiful. And then I was like, this is so cool. We should have a Falcon program at the library. So. <laughs> <laughs> That's how librarians' brains work. <laughs> exactly. Let's bring in some Falcons in here. Uh, um, yeah, that'd be cool. Um, and this other book that I'm reading, um, which I kind of dip into every now and again if I want to read something um, before bed, but I, you know, only have like 10 minutes because I'm exhausted. Yeah. Um, it's called Women in Clothes by um, Sheila um, Hetty. 
Heidi uh, Julevitz, I'm sorry, I probably mispronounced her name, and Leanne Shafton. Um, and it's sort of this anthology about women talking about their clothing. So, you know, there's some passages in there from like Miranda, De- Man- excuse me, Miranda July, Kim Gordon, Cindy Sherman. So like some well-known cool. people, but just sort of like everyday people um, talking about clothing and what they wear and cool. how they shop and how clothes make them feel and it's uh, it's really cool. Some of my favorite sections. They had all these women fill out surveys, and they'll kind of like kind of consolidate like all the answers to one question in one section. For example, about like you know clothing that was uh, you know color or um, you know dressing for success or something. So you get all these like little different perspectives on women and, and women in their clothes. That sounds really cool. Yeah, it's a nice, yeah, I think it would make a nice gift book as well if there was, um, you know, a fashionable lady in someone's life. Right, yeah, um, yeah, The yeah. cover's really beautiful, too. I um, like cool covers. Yeah, so that's what I'm kind of, yeah, that's what I'm working on. But up next, I um, have Roxane Gay's um, essay, Bad Feminist. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, I really like her writing, uh, and she's hilarious on Twitter, so I kind of want to dig into that. Um yeah, that's sort of what I'm reading right now. You have, um, I just finished Jane Smiley's A Thousand Acres, which won, I think the Pul- won the Pulitzer Prize in like 1991. My mother-in-law recommended it, and um, it's sort of a retelling of King Lear, um, of uh, these sort of three sisters who live in Iowa, um, and it was really, really incredible. Um, and also, I, I usually read kind of what's coming out now. Like, I don't read too much of things that have been published years ago. And, and it's interesting to read, like, a, like you know, when the Pulitzer Prize, like a literary book of, you know, 15 years ago and kind of how that writing has changed a lot. Yeah, bit. how things have changed, um, how tastes yeah. have changed. Yeah, and just the, the, you know, sort of the style. But she just, like, packs, like, punches, like you're reading, and all of a sudden you're like, wait, what just happened? Um, like, sort of similar when, like, you were talking about... Um, the Tender is a Night Book Club. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's sort of, I think, that line about, like, you know, and then she became lovers with her father, and you're like, wait a minute, like, yeah. that just happened? Like, yeah. you know, you're, you're sort of like, you know, some beautiful passage about, like, you know, the farm and, like, the wheat growing or something, and all of a sudden it's, like, about, turns into incest, and you're like, how, wait, right. how did you get That it? was one sentence. How did, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then my hands uh-huh. were replaced with, yeah. you know potato smashers and then it just moves on like whoa 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 what happened yeah, that yeah. merits more description explanation and writing but nope they're just like here's one sentence yeah. nope. and this happened yeah it's fa- fucking fascinating um mara Didi is a compelling person who's running the show at tufts library if you're anywhere near weymouth stop by it's at 46 Broad Street, near the old fire station, in front of fucking Weston Park, dude. <laughs> Head over there and check out a book, a DVD, music, ask for help. If you need a job or you, need a, you know how to fix your Toyota Corolla, there's a book in there to help you. Mara, thank exactly. you so much for oh, chatting with my me. my pleasure. I'm such a fan, so it was a real treat to be on the show. Uh, well, thank you for listening, and you're doing really good work every day, and, and keep it up. Thank you. Thank you. Graze.com. It's a snack service. Whoa. It delivers tasty and nutritious snacks right to your place of work, 
or to your home. And each snack is perfectly portioned. It's great for snacking on the go. Each box is customized to what you want. You go to this website and you choose what kind of snack you want. And there's over a hundred different kinds of snacks to choose from. Whole grain banana shortbread dippers, delicious with caramel sauce, punchy protein nuts, campfire s'mores, uh, smoothies. You can pick any kind of combination that you want and then they ship it right to your house. So each snack recipe combines multiple ingredients to create the perfect taste experience. And their in-house uh, nutritionist makes sure they are free of GMOs, artificial flavors, or trans fat, so you can feel good about snacking. So go to graze.com, G-R-A-Z-E.com now and get your first box free. You have to use my special code, however, Nate, N-A-T-E. So that's graze.com, G-R-A-Z-E.com, slash Nate, and get some free snacks on me. It's act three of Reading Aloud. Uh, we've had a compelling interview. We've had some jokes. And now it's act three, where we get a little bit more serious. It's, uh, it's May. It's the second week in May. And this is when all of the colleges and universities in America are graduating their students. And it's commencement address season. Um, there's a lot of great speeches that have passed throughout the internet. Um, I think the most famous one is that Kurt Vonnegut one where he's, where his advice was to wear sunscreen. His entire speech was, you know, basically about wearing sunscreen. Uh, Conan O'Brien had a really great one at Dartmouth a couple of years ago. Uh, JK Rowling had her famous one at Harvard. Um, there've been a lot of great commencement addresses that get passed, uh, from person to person. And my favorite one is it's the 10th anniversary of this one. Uh, this was in May of 2005, and it was the speech that David Foster Wallace gave at Kenyon College. And it's gone on to be this enormous piece of pop psychology and sort of self-help. Uh, he describes uh, a really compelling way to live your life. And I read this thing like once every two or three months just to sort of remind myself how wonderful it is. And I try to carry this with me in my back pocket every day, not literally, but in the back pocket of my brain, because it's really, it's incredibly compelling and he makes a really great case for um, empathy, really, and not, well, listen, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna have him tell you, but I'm gonna read it because this is my, I, I feel like I'm doing this a lot recently. I haven't been having friends come in and read things because I like them so much and I don't wanna share them. Uh, this is another example of that. I love this speech so much. It's called This is Water. It's since been published. You can get a hard copy of it. Little and Brown uh, published it. You can go to any of your local bookstores and pick it up. It's called This is Water. And uh, buckle up. Greetings and congratulations to Kenyon's graduating class of 2005. There are these two young fish swimming along, and they happen to meet an older fish swimming the other way, who nods at them and says, Morning, boys, how's the water? And the two young fish swim along for a bit, and then eventually one of them looks over at the other and goes, What the hell is water? 
This is a standard requirement of U.S. commencement speeches, the deployment of didactic little parable-ish stories. The story turns out to be one of the better, less bullshitty conventions of the genre, but if you're worried that I plan to present myself here as the wise older fish explaining what water is to you younger fish, please don't be. I am not the wise old fish. The point of the story is merely that the most obvious, important realities are often the ones that are hardest to see and talk about. Stated as an English sentence, of course, this is just a banal platitude, but the fact is that in the day-to-day trenches of adult existence, banal platitudes can have a life or death importance. Or so I wish to suggest to you on this dry and lovely morning. Of course, the main requirement of speeches like this is that I'm supposed to talk about your liberal arts education's meaning to try to explain why the degree you are about to receive has actual human value instead of just a material payoff. So let's talk about the single most pervasive cliche in the commencement speech genre, which is that a liberal arts education is not so much about filling you up with knowledge as it is about, quote, teaching you how to think. If you're like me as a student, you've never liked hearing this, and you tend to feel a bit insulted by the claim that you needed anybody to teach you how to think, since the fact that you even got admitted to a college this good seems like proof that you already know how to think. But I'm going to pose it to you that the liberal arts cliché turns out not to be insulting at all. If your total freedom of choice regarding what to think about seems too obvious to waste time discussing, I'd ask you to think about fish and water, and to bracket for just a few minutes your skepticism about the value of the totally obvious. Here's another didactic little story. There are these two guys sitting together in a bar in the remote Alaskan wilderness. One of the guys is religious, the other is an atheist, and the two are arguing about the existence of God with the special intensity that comes after about the fourth beer. And the atheist says, look, it's not like I don't have actual reasons for not believing in God. It's not like I haven't ever experimented with the whole God and prayer thing. Just last month, I got caught away from the camp in that terrible blizzard, and I was totally lost, and I couldn't see a thing, and it was 50 below, and so I tried it. I fell to my knees in the snow and cried out, Oh God, if there is a God, I'm lost in this blizzard, and I'm going to die if you don't help me. And now in the bar, the religious guy looks at the atheist, all puzzled. Well, then you must believe now, he says. After all, here you are, alive. The atheist just rolls his eyes. No, man, all that was was a couple Eskimos happened to come wandering by and show me the way back to camp. It's easy to run this story through kind of a standard liberal arts analysis. The exact same experience can mean two totally different things to two different people, given those people's two different belief templates and two different ways of constructing meaning from experience. Because we prize tolerance and diversity of belief, nowhere in our liberal arts analysis do we want to claim that one guy's interpretation is true and the other guy's is bad or false, which is fine, except we also never end up talking about just where these individual templates and beliefs come from, meaning where they come from inside the two guys, as if a person's most basic orientation toward the world and the meaning of his experience were somehow just hardwired, like height or shoe size or automatically absorbed from the culture like language, as if how we construct meaning were not actually a matter of personal, intentional choice. Plus, there's the whole matter of arrogance. The non-religious guy is so totally certain in his dismissal of the possibility that the passing Eskimos had anything to do with his prayer for help. True, there are plenty of religious people who seem arrogant and certain of their own interpretations too. They're probably even more repulsive than atheists, at least to most of us, but... The religious dogmatist's problem is exactly the same as the story's unbeliever, blind certainty. 
a, a closed-mindedness that amounts to an imprisonment so total that the prisoner doesn't even know he's locked up. The point here is that I think this is one part of what teaching me how to think is really supposed to mean. To be just a little less arrogant. To have just a little critical awareness about myself and my certainties. Because a huge percentage of the stuff that I tend to automatically be certain of is, it turns out, totally wrong and deluded. I have learned this the hard way, as I predict you graduates will too. Here is just one example of the total wrongness of something I tend to be automatically sure of. Everything in my own immediate experience supports my deep belief that I am the absolute center of the universe. The realest, most vivid, and important person in existence. We rarely think about this sort of natural, basic self-centeredness because it's so socially repulsive, but it's pretty much the same for all of us. It's our default setting hardwired into our boards at birth. Think about it. There is no experience you have had that you are not the absolute center of. The world as you experience it is there in front of you or behind you, to the left or right of you on your TV or your monitor and so on. Other people's thoughts and feelings have to be communicated to you somehow, but your own are so immediate, urgent, real. Please don't worry that I'm getting ready to lecture you about compassion or other directedness or the so-called virtues. This is not a matter of virtue. It's a matter of choosing to do the work of somehow altering or getting free of my natural hardwired default setting, which is to be deeply and literally self-centered and to see and interpret everything through the lens of self. People who can adjust their natural default setting this way are often described as being well-adjusted, which I suggest to you is not an accidental term. Given the triumphant academic setting here, an obvious question is how much of this work of adjusting our default setting involves actual knowledge or intellect? This question gets very tricky. Probably the most dangerous thing about an academic education, at least in my own case, is that it enables my tendency to over-intellectualize stuff to get lost in abstract argument inside my head instead of simply paying attention to what is going on right in front of me. Paying attention to what is going on inside of me. As I'm sure you guys know by now, it is extremely difficult to stay alert and attentive instead of getting hypnotized by the constant monologue inside your own head. Maybe happening right now. 20 years after my own graduation, I have come gradually to understand that the liberal arts cliche about teaching you how to think is actually shorthand for a much deeper, more serious idea. Learning how to think really means learning how to exercise some control over how and what you think. It means being conscious and aware enough to choose what you pay attention to and to choose how you construct meaning from experience because if you cannot exercise this kind of choice in adult life, you will be totally hosed. Think of the old cliche about, quote, the mind being an excellent servant but a terrible master. This, like many cliches, so lame and unexciting on the surface, actually expresses a great and terrible truth. It is not the least bit coincidental that adults who commit suicide with firearms almost always shoot themselves in the head. They shoot the terrible master. And the truth is that most of these suicides are actual dead long before they pull the trigger. And I submit that this is what the real, no bullshit value of your liberal arts education is supposed to be about, how to keep from going through your comfortable, prosperous, respectable adult life dead, unconscious, 
a slave to your head and to your natural default setting of being uniquely, completely, imperially alone day in and day out. That may sound like hyperbole or abstract nonsense, so let's get concrete. The plain fact is that you graduating seniors do not yet have any clue what day in, day out really means. There happens to be whole, large parts of adult American life that nobody talks about in commencement speeches. One such part involves boredom, routine, and petty frustration. The parents and older folks here will know all too well what I'm talking about. By way of example, let's say it's an average adult day and you get up in the morning to go to your challenging white-collar college graduate job and you work hard for 8 or 10 hours. And at the end of the day, you're tired and somewhat stressed and all you want is to go home and have a good supper and maybe unwind for an hour and then hit the sack early because, of course, you have to get up the next day and do it all over again. But then you remember there's no food at home. You haven't had time to shop this week because of your challenging job, and so now after work, you have to get in your car and drive to the supermarket. It's the end of the workday, and the traffic is apt to be very bad, so getting to the store takes way longer than it should, and when you finally get there, the supermarket is very crowded because, of course, it's the time of the day when all the other people with jobs also try to squeeze in some grocery shopping. And the store is hideously lit and infused with soul-killing Muzak or corporate pop, and it's pretty much the last place you want to be, but you can't just get in and quickly get out. You have to wander all over the huge, overlit stores, confusing aisles to find the stuff you want, and you have to maneuver your junky cart through all these other tired, hurried people with carts and eventually get all your supper supplies, except now it turns out there aren't enough checkout lanes. And even though it's the end of the day rush, so the checkout line is incredibly long, which is stupid and infuriating, but you can't take your frustration out on the frantic lady working the register who is overworked at a job whose daily tedium and meaninglessness surpasses the imagination of any of us here at a prestigious college. But anyway, you finally get to the checkout line's front and you pay for your food and you get told to have a nice day in a voice that is the absolute voice of death. Then you have to take your creepy, flimsy plastic bags of groceries in your cart with the one crazy wheel that pulls maddeningly to the left all the way out through the crowded, bumpy, littery parking lot. And then you have to drive all the way home through slow, heavy, SUV-intensive rush hour traffic, etc., etc. Everyone here has done this, of course. But it hasn't yet been part of your, well, your actual life, you graduates, your routine, day after week after month after year. But it will be. And many more dreary, annoying, seemingly meaningless routines besides. But that is not the point. The point is that petty, frustrating crap like this is exactly what the work of choosing is going to come in. Because the traffic jams and crowded aisles and long checkout lines... They give me time to think, and if I don't make a conscious decision about how to think and what to pay attention to, I'm going to be pissed and miserable every day I have to shop, because my natural default setting is the certainty that situations like this are really all about me, about my hunger and my fatigue and my desire to just get home, and it's going to seem for all the world like everyone else is just in my way. And who are all these people in my way? And look at how repulsive most of them are and how stupid and cow-like and dead-eyed and non-human they seem in the checkout line. Or at how annoying and rude it is that people are talking loudly on cell phones in the middle of this line. And look at how deeply and personally unfair this is. Or, of course, 
if I'm in a more socially conscious liberal arts form of my default setting, I can spend time in the end of the day traffic being disgusted about all the huge, stupid lane blocking SUVs and Hummers and V12 pickup trucks burning their wasteful, selfish 40 gallon tanks of gas. And I can dwell on the fact that the patriotic or religious bumper stickers always seem to be on the biggest, most disgustingly selfish vehicles. Uh, driven by the ugliest, most inconsiderate and aggressive drivers. And I think about how our children's children will despise us for wasting all the future's fuel and so forth and so on. You get the idea. If I choose to think this way in a store or on the freeway, fine. Lots of us do. Except thinking this way tends to be so easy and automatic that it doesn't have to be a choice. It is my natural default setting. It is the automatic way that I experience the boring, frustrating, crowding parts of adult life when I'm operating on the automatic, unconscious belief that I am the center of the world and that my immediate needs and feelings are what should determine the world's priorities. The thing is that, of course, there are totally different ways to think about these kinds of situations. In this traffic, all these vehicles stopped and idling in my way, it's not impossible that some of these people in SUVs have been in horrible auto accidents in the past and now find driving so terrifying that their therapist has all but ordered them to get a huge, heavy SUV so they can feel safe enough to drive or that the Hummer that just cut me off is maybe being driven by a father whose little child is hurt or sick in the seat next to him and he's trying to get this kid to the hospital and he's in a bigger, more legitimate hurry than I am. It is actually I who am in his way or I can choose to force myself to consider the likelihood that everyone else in the supermarket's checkout line is just as bored and frustrated as I am, and that some of these people probably have harder, more tedious, and painful lives than I do. Again, please don't think that I'm giving you moral advice, or that I'm saying you're supposed to think this way, or that anyone expects you to just automatically do, because it's hard. It takes will and effort. And if you're like me, some days you won't be able to do it, or you just flat out don't want to. But most days, if you're aware enough to give yourself a choice, you can choose differently to look at this dead-eyed, over-made-up lady who just screamed at her kids in the checkout line. Maybe she's not usually like this. Maybe she's been up there, maybe she's been up three straight nights holding the hand of a husband who is dying of bone cancer. Or maybe this very lady is the low-page clerk at the DMV who just yesterday helped your spouse resolve a horrific, infuriating red tape problem through some small act of bureaucratic kindness. Of course, none of this is likely, but it's also not impossible. It just depends what you want to consider. If you're automatically sure that you know what reality is, and you're operating on your default setting, then you, like me, probably won't consider possibilities that aren't annoying and miserable. But if you really learn how to pay attention, then you will know that there are options. It will actually be within your power to experience a crowded, hot, slow, consumer hell type situation as not only meaningful, but sacred. On fire with the same force that made the stars. Love, fellowship, the mystical oneness of all things deep down. Not that the mystical stuff is necessarily true, the only thing that's capital T true is that you get to decide how you're going to try to see it. This, I submit, is the freedom of a real education, of learning how to be well-adjusted, 
you get to consciously decide what has meaning and what doesn't. You get to decide what to worship. Because here's something else that's weird but true. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship, be it JC or Allah, be it Yahweh or the wicked mother goddess or the four noble truths or some inviolable set of ethical principles, is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Never feel you have enough. It is the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally bury you. On one level, we all know this stuff already. It's been codified as myths, proverbs, cliches, epigrams, parables, the skeleton of every great story. The whole trick is keeping the truth up front in daily consciousness. Worship power, you will end up feeling weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power over others to numb you from your own fear. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. But the insidious thing about these forms of worship is not that they're evil or sinful, it's that they're unconscious. They are default settings. They're the kind of worship you just gradually slip into day after day, getting more and more selective about what you see and how you measure value without ever being fully aware that that's what you're doing. And the so-called real world will not discourage you from operating on your default setting because the so-called real world of men and money and power hums merrily along in a pool of fear and anger and frustration and craving and worship of self. Our own present culture has harnessed these forces in ways that have yielded extraordinary wealth and comfort and personal freedom. The freedom all to be lords of our tiny skull-sized kingdoms alone at the center of all creation. This kind of freedom has much to recommend it, but of course, there are all different kinds of freedom. And the kind that is most precious you will not hear much talked about in the great outside world of wanting and achieving. The really important kind of freedom involves attention and awareness and discipline and being able truly to care about other people and to sacrifice for them over and over in petty, unsexy ways every day. That is real freedom. That is being educated and understanding how to think. The alternative is unconsciousness, the default setting, the rat race, the constant gnawing sense of having had and lost some infinite thing. I know that this stuff doesn't sound fun and breezy or grandly inspirational the way a commencement speech is supposed to sound. What it is, as far as I can see, is the capital T truth with a whole lot of rhetorical niceties stripped away. You are, of course, free to think of it whatever you wish, but please don't dismiss it as just some finger-wagging Dr. Laura sermon. None of this stuff is really about morality or religion or dogma or big fancy questions of life after death. The capital T truth is about life before death. It is about the real value of a real education which has almost nothing to do with knowledge and everything to do with simple awareness.
awareness of what is so real and essential, so hidden in plain sight all around us, all the time, that we have to keep reminding ourselves over and over, this is water. This is water. It is unimaginably hard to do this, to stay conscious and alive in the adult world day in and day out. Which means yet another grand cliche turns out to be true. Your education really is the job of a lifetime. And it commences now. I wish you way more than luck. I, I shouldn't start off with an apology. I, I stumbled through some words on that reading. I should have gone back and re-recorded it, but I, I, I don't know. I just wanted it to stand the way that it stood. Uh, that was David Foster Wallace's famous uh, commencement address to Kenyon College in 2005. It's called This Is Water. It's since been published. You can actually get a hard copy of it at your local library or bookstore. It's, uh, it's a wonderful way to live your life. I think about that speech all the time. Uh, so thank you. Thanks for listening. Um, again, I keep on reading things because I, <laughs> I don't have, I don't want to give it to friends because I like these pieces too much. So, so fuck my friends. I'm going to read them. Uh, thanks so much again for listening to Reading Aloud. Uh, there's a live show this Sunday at the UCB Franklin. Five bucks. Come down and check us out and get the book, Toni Morrison's uh, God Help the Child, which is in stores right now. Pick it up, read it. It's a short read too. And she's dynamic. I mean, you can't beat Toni Morrison. It's only 200 pages, so you can read that in a breeze. So read that and send us in your thoughts at readingaloudpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening, and thanks for spreading the word. I've gotten some really kind um, kind words sent to me on Twitter, uh, Reading Aloud Pod, or I'm Nate Cordry. And thanks for listening. It's, it's a joy to do this show. I want to do a lot more of them. So thank you for listening and, and telling your friends about it. It's, uh, the show is growing, and that, that excites me. So thank you, and uh, we'll see you again next week for more Reading Aloud. Again, um, this song that you're hearing is Possessed by Paul James. His music is great. You should find his music and listen to it. I'm Nate Cordry, and I'll see you soon. Oh, you hit me like a hurricane! Big thanks to Graze for sponsoring this episode. Graze.com is a snack service that delivers tasty and nutritious snacks right to your home or work or another place that you spend time. As long as it has an address, it'll get there. All Graze snacks come in perfectly portioned packs ready for snacking on the go, and each box is customized to your taste preferences and dietary requirements. So go to Graze, G-R-A-Z-E.com now to get your first box free. And use my special code, Nate. That's Graze, G-R-A-Z-E dot com, code Nate. Happy snacking. Pop. Pop? Pop. 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 Wolf Pop is part of Midroll Media, executive produced by Adam Sachs, Matt Gorley, and Paul Shear.